You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximizer Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, This is uh, summertime. Everybody's hopefully enjoying the outdoors. And uh, if you're uh, planting food plots, hopefully you're all done. I've been on the road. I just got back from a client visit in New York State. Actually, was near Massachusetts and uh, another one next week. So the ball keeps rolling and I keep working. Um, I'm fortunate today we got Tim Russell back from uh, Green Fire Forestry. Tim uh, is going to talk today about a client that he uh, recently was on. We're going to get into some specifics on understory management. In the past, we've talked about overstory trees and you know, tree selection and everything that goes along with that. But we're going to we're gonna try to break down some of the things he saw on a client property. And I think it's going to be very valuable for everybody to kind of understand, okay, you know, deer live ground level up and what do they need in their environment? Or what is something that's interfering that's creating some problems for them? Tim, are you on the line? I'm on the line. Hey, how you doing, John? Good, man. Good to talk to you. How you been? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, good. I'm, good. I'm well. It sounds like uh, we're doing similar things out there, doing site visits, walking around properties, thinking about deer. And uh, yeah, one of these uh, more recent site visits had me thinking about the understory. You know, that was one of our uh, recent brief discussions. And that seems like a topic to cover. 
you know, in discussing forest management, there's a lot of focus on the overstory, uh, which is with good reason, because when we do that, we're usually looking to manage the light, uh, whether it's a commercial treatment or forest stand improvement, whether it's a thinning or whether it's, uh, you know, a, a full on regeneration treatment. Um, often we're thinking about the overstory and now we're going to treat the overstory to create the right light conditions. And also in many cases, where's the money going to come from, right? In the case of commercial logging. But uh, as you pointed out, what deer need, generally speaking, is within five feet of the ground. And of course, you know, there are some things uh, <laughs> we do uh, that we, we specifically do to, to kind of create those conditions and, and allow those plants to come in and encourage the plants that we want or, or that deer want and discourage the plants that they don't want. And I may have even mentioned <laughs> in a prior episode that one of the ways that I do um, look at conducting a thinning differently uh, with deer in mind compared to just timber is often that I'm more likely to mark some of those mid-story trees that aren't really competing with a crop tree just to let more light down near ground level and allow some of those understory plants to thrive. Tim, let me ask you a question, and I think a lot of people get confused at this. When you're looking at the stocking uh, situation of a forest stand and you're trying to make a measurement essentially you're trying to measure volume and then in concert with that you're trying to think about how to let more light to the ground what is your process there um what is what is the the ideal technique to 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 let the right amount of light to the ground and i know it's obviously aspect contingent but you know what what's your threshold that you're you're looking to do to create at least a decent amount of understory um what, what what's your process Sure. So um, I think you, you use the word best somewhere in there. <laughs> so uh, sometimes I'm looking at a property in real detail, preparing a forest management plan, that type of thing. And I'm going out and actually taking measurements on the ground, um, putting in plots and taking tree diameters and writing down species and trying to uh, basically get at the question, how crowded is the forest? Um, so uh, in thinking about how crowded things are, we might look at how many trees are there per acre, um, but that's not the best metric because little trees don't take up that much space. They don't compete as much with one another compared to big trees. Um, so you can look at trees per acre and average size. One of the common metrics that we look at is basal area per acre, or in other words, how does the cross-sectional area uh, of all the trees in the stand add up, um, you know, and we express that on a, a on a basis of square footage per acre of land. So it's literally how much space is taken up by trees. <laughs> um, really tree stems at four and a half feet off the ground uh, is really how that's taken, but how crowded are the tree stems on a per acre basis? And then we use different uh, stocking charts to tell us, Hey, how, you know, relatively speaking, and we use the term relative density, how crowded is that situation for a particular species or species mix? Because really we're taking measurements on the tree stems. Um, and in part, we can use those measurements to compute volumes when we're looking at commercial harvesting. But we can also use that information to kind of make an inference about <laughs> how tightly crowded are the tree crowns of that particular species, um, given how tightly packed those stems are. Yeah, that's a good point. So when it boils down to it, we have to make some management decisions and, and get anywhere between, let's just say a range, let's say in the low end 50 
I would say 50 square basal feet, something like that, all the way up to 80 or maybe even 90. That would be kind of the range of acceptability depending on, you know, the, the size and type of trees that are in that area and, and thinning it from a fully stocked stand down to something a, a little more, I guess, agreeable to generate more of that understory, right? I mean, that's that would be kind of maybe an objective you, you may have in a certain area. Would that be kind of a range that you would think would be acceptable? I would say it depends on the species mix, but in general, I mean, you're, you're kind of looking at that ballpark area um, and then, you know, kind of getting as 50 is kind of on the low end. That's where you're getting out of a thinning. And, and in many cases for many species mixes, looking at more what would be a regeneration treatment. But typically if the type of treatment that I'm looking at is a thinning, the intent of the thinning is to leave the site fully occupied with trees. Um, but typically speaking, we want to do that with as few trees as possible by spreading that growth potential, you know, on as few trees as will fully occupy that site. So um, once I'm in that fully stocked condition, you could keep squeezing in trees. You're not actually going to grow more wood or produce more per acre. You're just spreading that growth potential out across more trees. And by thinning that stand out, uh, you spread that potential on fewer trees, which, you know, in a traditional sense, thinking about, um, forest products, you might think, okay, I'm growing a similar amount of wood on fewer trees. So I'm going to get larger pieces of material that could go into saw logs. But that same concept applies when you're thinking about things like hard mass and all that. And so, you know, we use similar techniques. If you were to look at, you know, the basal area ranges on where you might thin for oak for acorn production, it very much eclipses the basal area ranges that you might be looking at after a thinning when you're managing an oak stand for timber production. Yeah, well said. So let's get into the uh, example that we have. So you were recently on a client property and, and we'll just say it was in New York State and you're working on this individual property, providing them recommendations. Um, let's go through some of the problem areas that you you saw on this individual's property and kind of explain, you know, maybe some of the issues and, and how you would attack those. Um, and then, you know, something that you found maybe profound or something that you realized that this client had that was a little bit unique. Sure. Well, for one, this client had already done a good amount of work uh, killing European buckthorn, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's one of my least favorite invasive plants. Oftentimes, you know, there are invasives that we don't particularly desire, but they are the cover that is provided for deer. You get into areas where what is there is multiflora rose, shrub honeysuckle, Japanese barberry, autumn olive. And sometimes there's not much you can do to grow something else, but it provides the cover. Um, common buckthorn is one of my least favorites. You know, they have a way of growing up higher than the other shrubs and almost being like a tree and, and shading things out. So he, he focused on some of those areas where he had some of the worst invasive issues. Um, uh, he, he had almost all everything you could name in the book in this case, um, you know, buckthorn, the other, the other shrubs I mentioned there, swallowwort. Um, when, I'm, when I'm looking at a property and thinking about managing light, I try to identify the problem plants early on in places before there's cutting, ideally so that they can be killed off as much as possible before releasing them. Um, some strategies that are often recommended are, Focusing on areas with minor infestations before the areas that are really overtaken by invasive plants in the case that you're, you're looking at invasive plants kind of in the, the broader group of undesirable plants. Um, if you've got desirable plants that are immediately competing with those undesirable plants, you might focus in on those areas first so that you can release the plants that are desired. 
Um, and really, I mean, my takeaway after looking at that is just kind of know your understory, get out there with a field guide and, and see what's out there. Learn about which invasive plants are, are local to your area. What your favorite plants are, are local to your area. Cause you know, I work, I work in a lot of woods around here. And if you were like, Hey, well, what woodland plants are good for deer? I might say, okay, you've got trillium is high preference. Indian cucumber root is high preference. Solomon seal, false Solomon seal, um, false lily of the valley. You know, I could think of <laughs> the plants that I consider high preference for deer on this property. You know, some areas we went, there was black swallowwort. We went to another stand that, you know, we were marking some TSI needed to be thinned. And it had pokeweed, bed straw, elderberry, red raspberry, and blackberry. Everywhere that was there was light. A tree blew down or one place that he had already released some apple trees. That was what was coming up. And, you know, that's just what wanted to come up. It's, you know, I knew what I was looking at, but that's a strange mix. That's, you know, a mixture of plants that I've never particularly found in any one place. But he got a little bit of light to the understory, and this, otherwise, you're looking through, it's a bare understory, and you could see anywhere that (laughs) there was that sunlight, he had these desirable plants. We got into some places where he had those desirable plants and then some undesirable plants as well, which is, you know, one of those scenarios where, hey, maybe killing those invasives where they directly compete with desirable plants makes those a priority relative to other invasives of the same species that might be elsewhere in the stand or maybe, you know, elsewhere on the property just occurring at a higher density um, that you're not necessarily getting the same level of benefit from control. So I took my daughter out tonight for a ride. We, uh, we went over to my land and, well, you know, I'm always over there working when I, when I get a chance. And, uh, you know, I had a couple areas that I cleared out and I removed the, uh, the resident buckthorn, common buckthorn that was in that area. The strategy with a buckthorn, and I, if we may have even talked about this before, is I actually just cut it. I didn't even stump spray it. I, I cut it. Um, the regeneration in a couple of those areas is an east slope. Um, I, I don't really see the, the volume of, of plant life, uh, the herbaceous material, come back immensely in a couple of these areas that are they're relatively dry. So I left the buckthorn, and the deer have hammered uh, that, that stump. Now, if I have an area that's pretty wet, um, it gets a fair amount of sun. Um, I'm probably going to stump spray that. And here's kind of one of my rules of thumb for, for anybody. And, and, and please take this for, for what it's worth. If you can identify 20 different understory species, and they, they could be, you know, a, a shrub, a, you know, a, you know, a forb, whatever the case may be, a grass, you know, that's your start. Continue to learn what those species are. I have a lot of grasses on my property, broom grasses all over the place. I have orchard grass. And, and I struggle with, you know, identifying everything and then knowing what the next steps are in this process, right? So if you're a landowner and you don't know what to do, you know, you have to start to evaluate that plant and, and make some decisions. So we had a podcast I did a while ago about identifying multifunction plants. So does that plant provide some benefit? And don't think, you know, very species specific, like just deer, right? There's grasses are a great pollinator, uh, for you know bees, uh, so you know consider you know the the, the pollen that generates from grass, and uh, other you know natural glass grasses or forbs or flowers. Fleabane seems to be very present uh, on my landscape. I have a uh, spice bush, pokeweed, uh, some of the ones that 
poison ivy. I mean, I, I saw at least 20 to 25 different plants in a, in a small particular area. That's a lot of species richness. And it's really important to kind of understand one point that Tim brought up earlier, he mentioned bed straw. Bed straw is all over the place here. And, you know, that that is a problematic plant. Um, it's definitely one that you would consider getting rid of. Um, and I'm, I'm not even sure where it originated, but it's I don't believe it is native. I, I know it's not native. Um, but it's trying to look at those plants and, and start making a determination of what's the value to your landscape and, and removing some of those, even if they provide a source of cover. Maybe there is a better source of cover that you can use, like spice bush is an alternative to uh but a common buckthorn and you know i did a podcast on replacing non-native plants and, and alternatives so start engaging you know on your landscape and making those decisions but you know i specifically went over to start to look for plants that i thought would be beneficial because we're in that growing season you know a lot of those first annual forbs are starting to generate and you're starting to see browse pressure and starting to evaluate you know what deer are choosing at this point in time so just to add a point to what tim's suggesting uh, Tim, go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. No, not at all. I mean, that you made some really good points there. Um, certainly trying to manage for native plants is uh, better uh, in general for species other than deer where that's possible. Um, and in some places, that means where you've killed invasive plants and you've created a void. Uh, maybe you want to plant something there. But, you know, much of the time, the stuff that we want to grow is Red is already there, <laughs> whether it's a seed or whether it's just a little seedling, it's favoring those plants and releasing them from competition and allowing them uh, the space to grow. Uh, oftentimes they will, they will come in and, you know, sometimes we're dealing with w- what is sometimes termed legacy effect. Like when you have an area that maybe doesn't have too high a herd density, but it has historically for an extended period of time where the desirable plants have become more or less absent from the the landscape and you might have a much higher density of undesirable plants, you know, and that's, that's an issue I deal with uh, periodically, you know, some of the state timber sales, they, they have folks like myself come in and, and kill off the ferns because uh, you know, in certain wildlife management units, they've just been growing lots of hay scented fern because everything else has been browsed away. So Tim, I was the property that I was just on. We had a good example. So we started evaluating the understory plants and, and they had a lot of hay-scented fern, sensitive fern, all different types of ferns that were on that landscape. We looked at the neighboring property across the street. We got a chance to walk over there and said, okay, they had the clear cut two, three years ago. Every single area that was, you know, the overstory was removed, there was fern throughout. No regeneration whatsoever, any other species. So in those situations where somebody's dealing with fern, what's probably the better route to go? Um, do, you, do you think about it beforehand? A lot of times it's resident on the, in the understory. It's rhizomal, so you're dealing with that issue. How do you, how do you typically handle fern? Well, for one, and, you know, this is a, a good topic, uh, <laughs> you know, as far <laughs> as know your understory. Well, you know, I've got even this, this week, we're, we're the experts. I've still got a library full of books. I'm looking down the barrel at one of these fern jobs and I'm looking at my field guide this week that I'm like, live, let myself get a refresher on fern species because, you know, hay scented fern can be a problem. And New York fern sometimes kind of, especially if you've already got a, a hay scented fern problem, but not every fern that you're, that you're going to have out there is going to be a problem and not all the ones that can be a problem are necessarily always going to be a problem. So you, I would say, start by knowing what it is and then start asking, you know, what percent cover is it actually? Is it covering less than a quarter of the stand or is there hay scented fern 
like there often is in places in, in New York and Pennsylvania, just wall to wall, you know, 80 to a hundred percent cover. Um, you, you look at that situation and you manage the overstory and create the correct light conditions. And all you're going to get back is fern. And it could also mean that you need some herd management. It could be indicating that, but you know, um, that's why they term it legacy effect is you take care of the deer. And if you've got a situation where that fern is already, you know, everywhere and, and that's what's abundant, that's what's going to hang on until something's done about it. Yeah, that's the tough part. The fern is, so uh, just a just a point of reference for folks, and I think a lot of people recognize this is, you know, ferns, in some cases, a lot of times that, you know, they, they tend to be in kind of cooler areas adjacent to maybe, a, you know, a, an overstory area. And you'll see a lot of bedding in those areas, especially this time of year. It provides a, a decent form of cover, uh, especially fawning cover for that matter. So particularly in the north, a lot of people don't recognize that, but I see a lot of bedding in, in, in situations like that. So its value degrades immensely once fall comes. So if you're like, oh, it's a great stand of fern and it, you know, the deer are bedding in there, yeah, that's temporary. So, you know, try to engage on your landscape and see seasonally the benefits of that particular plant. In most cases, I'm removing the fern. Uh, I'm not usually keeping it resident on landscape unless it's in small percentages like on my property it is. But if it was, you know, to expand in a larger capacity, I'd be very concerned with it. And the other thing, and maybe I've talked about this before in the past, is I've talked about slash walls and trying to remove, because of this legacy effect, you know, remove uh, browse pressure and try to promote what, what is native in those areas. And in some cases, you, you may struggle to actually have plants um, that have been you know, functionally extinct in some capacity come back. So pay attention to any of the understory plants. Again, their value and particularly their value to deer. This is this is something that we're, we're focused on. But, you know, I, I don't think that everybody, even individuals that, that are very, very smart, know every single plant. I mean, tonight we're out and, uh, you know, we're driving around, we're looking at plants. I don't know every plant. I've said that many times, uh, you know, uh, the best thing you can do is continue to research and understand. And then look, you know, with my clients, I just say, you may not know what this plant is, but take a picture of it in your mind. And if the deer are utilizing it for whatever reason, consider its benefit on the landscape and figure out what time of year they're being it's being utilized. It's really kind of a simple equation, not knowing the plant, but knowing its its utilization is, is really critical. Sorry, Tim. And then let's let's go on a little bit further because you know, you talked about invasive plants and we're trying to talk about, you know, what's on the landscape. What else did you work on with this client? Yeah, so uh, we spent a lot of time marking trees uh, to cut. We were basically marking some forest stand improvement uh, in a couple different stands. And, uh, you know, he had uh, some some maple stands that really had never, I'll, when I say they've never been thinned or never been cut, I mean that particular cohort, you know, so since the last time it was either cut really heavily and allowed to come back to a new sapling class or regenerated in some way you know it was an even age stand that you go in there and most places really hadn't had trees cut and <laughs> it had been a long time you know the basal area was up 110 120 in places um and in fact because of that you know i the bringing the the stocking level down to that target kind of you know uh, like I was saying before, as few trees as possible, still leaving it fully stocked. We weren't able to do that in any place um, in this particular treatment just because I won't usually open up a, the canopy of a hardwood stand more than about a third uh, in a single entry to avoid blowdown epicormic shoots and that type of thing. <laughs> but uh, 
I guess part of what was satisfying about um, <laughs> this one is because, you know, this landowner was really interested in maintaining his property and doing the right thing. And we spent the day picking out the right trees to cut. Um, I, I almost had forgotten when he initially reached out to me, he had already had somebody out to the property who had looked at some of his trees and had this, you know, idea for a commercial harvest before he called me. And I said, well, let me just come out and take a look. And, you know, basically from what I could tell to put together a commercial harvest on this particular property would have entailed harvesting a lot of trees, which ought not to have been harvested, basically including a lot of the best and the biggest trees from, you know, that cohort of maple that is mainly an even age stand where taking the best, you know, taking the largest trees and the best trees doesn't mean taking the oldest trees, right? It means taking the most vigorous, the genetically best, the ones that are in the upper canopy positions. So, um, you know, that's, that's the type of thing that I was, uh, I was glad that I was able to come in and, and suggest otherwise. Um, because <laughs> it, it seems like this guy that he was talking to was, you know, what, what I might call a timber pimp kind of character who's looking <laughs> to, uh, you know, uh, make a quick dollar off the land, you know, certainly when it's time to cut trees, we want to get the best money for them possible. You know, I do that through a competitive bid process for my clients, that kind of thing, but we're always focusing on the outcome. We don't cut trees to harvest trees. We cut trees because of a desired future condition for that stand. Even with a timber objective in mind, you're still not cutting the tree to harvest the tree. You're cutting the tree to leave behind a residual stand that's in a better position to accrue value. We can apply the same thing to deer habitat, but the point is there's always a desired future condition. So, you know, I'll say it. You can tell them Tim Russell told you timber pimping is not forestry. It's not. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the timber pimp because um, I think this is this is important. I think a lot of people don't. Maybe they've met a timber pimp. Uh, I've met a few timber pimps. I think so. Let's let's talk about you know how a timber pimp would go about you know what they're doing or at least their story to help <laughs> entice an individual to to make a like in your case a bad decision and and hopefully you know this client obviously recognized your point and you know point of view and perspective on things so. How, how, what was his strategy? Well, I mean, I'm sure the timber pimp gave him, uh, gave him some thoughts on, on how to make a dollar or 50 cents. What, what was the strategy? There? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, well, this is got the, you know, what, what was uh, conveyed to me and maybe you kind of remember, uh, me mentioning it, but I guess the guy at the time had talked, said something about nickels and dimes and it started his pitch kind of saying like, Hey, if you see a nickel or a dime laying on the ground, it's not much, but you still pick it up. Right. And kind of, you know, went on to <laughs> explain, well, these smaller trees are just nickel and dimes, but they'll add all up across the property, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's not like it's a well-defined term. You know, I throw that out there and certainly other foresters like myself uh, <laughs> have their opinions about how somebody treated a woodlot and would use a phrase like that if it's fitting. You know, some terms to be aware of are diameter limit cutting what that means is taking every tree above a certain diameter in the woods and usually that doesn't mean taking the older ones but again taking the best and leaving the rest uh the term high grade is sometimes used to describe that same thing uh the term real estate cut is sometimes used to describe how you might get the timber value out and try to do it you know maybe not cut everything worth a dollar to have a low visual impact but get out as much as you can and still have the property be saleable 
And, uh, you know, in none of these cases are you really paying mind to the future of the forest as the primary reason for conducting the cutting. So, you know, as far as <laughs> what's, a, what's a timber pimp, you, you could you could almost uh, kind of infer what's meant there because, well, you know, I mean, the forest is like a lady and she deserves your respect and to be treated gently and to be treated right. And somebody who might be termed a timber pimp disrespects her, abuses her, makes a quick buck off of her and destroys her. And it's a total waste. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's an analogy in life, let alone uh, for timber management. Um, inter- interesting. All right, so we, we got a new uh, we got a new term of art here, timber pimp. And then so let's 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 get past the timber pimp for a second, and let's talk a little bit about any other management that you saw in the landscape that was critical or something that a client was doing really really well that you want to emphasize. Yeah, well, in this case, I've I've often seen this where the, they're you know apple trees to release. You go in, you find old uh, orchards, and you free them up from competition. He had kind of a row of them right along the edge of his field, and he did like another row that was like you know just behind the row of apple trees, where he just basically almost like you would do for a row thinning, uh, just to open up that backside of those apple trees, and you could tell it definitely made a difference. And, you know, he had other parts of the property with apple trees that, you know, just like I have, <laughs> they were pretty well, you know, pretty badly declined and weren't released in time and they're dead sticks. So, um, you know, you could definitely see the difference between where the work was put in and where, uh, like everybody else, you know, you can always run out of time when you're hunting property. So, yeah, yeah. And, and thinking about this is really simple. You've got trees that are existent that are in you know, maybe not great shape, but they're existent. And the time it takes to produce, you know, apple tree or crab apple tree to, you know, have this similar output is going to be years and years and years. So, you know, a tree in the landscape like that is really critical to manage and you're, you're better to get after those, you know, sooner rather than later. So that's, that's definitely a good advice piece. I think, you know, in this, in this standpoint, and certainly you can remove the dead diseased at that point in time you know, minimize, you know, any significant pruning this time of year, but there's no reason you can't get, get rid of the dead trees this time of year. Um, what else, anything else that just comes to your mind that, that sticks with you that you feel like was, uh, was advantageous for somebody, you know, thinking about, you know, making improvements to their hunting property? Oh boy, I guess we went through a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, in, in one case it was one of those, uh, in the ground watering type deals with a plastic tub that, you know, I usually I'm not a huge fan of where you could create a, a, you know, a vernal pool or something like that, maybe in the ground. But in his case, the property's bone dry. It was like his only, it was his only hope. And, you know, he, he had some good trail cameras off of it. So I guess, to, uh, you know, don't give yourself any hard and fast rules. <laughs> you know, there's always an exception where something you might've written off and said, ah, you know, that's not really my way of uh, looking at it. Um, maybe actually fits. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of watering holes in, in general on most of the properties that I work on. You know, the alternative, everyone's like, you know, don't, we only hinge cut 10% of the properties that we work on. And, you know, I always hear those stand, I'm, there has not been a property that I've worked on and or advised somebody where there hasn't been a single tree or multiple trees hinge cut. But very rarely will I recommend water holes on properties, just, again, based on the areas that I'm working in. 
Uh, it's it's you know the, the deer are conditioned to a large volume of water on most of the landscape. Where that's not the case, then sure, maybe that is advantageous. Um, I'm not saying don't emplace them. It's just not high on my priority list because you know there's maintenance that goes along with them. You got to pump them out. You got to clean them every year. I doubt many people are doing that type of thing. So just kind of keep, sure. keep that in mind. At least that's my perspective and recommendation. And and I'm working on properties all the time, so it's all about time saving effort. So all right. I think uh, I think we had a lot on this conversation. I think uh, I think the uh, the timber pimp thing is going to stick with me, and I'm sure the audience. So uh, you know, I don't know. Anything else on your end, or you you think you're good? No, um, and you know, certainly, if you own land for long enough, you might get postcards and letters, and it could be from you know anybody. It could be a logger, a forester, somebody who's looking to broker wood. Oftentimes, like consultants like myself might come out and take a look for free if it's nearby. You know, sometimes there's a state forester or, or outreach forester who can at least give you an honest idea of, hey, does a commercial timber sale make sense? But, uh, yeah, I guess what I'd leave you with is get some field guides, get out there in the woods, learn what you've got growing in your understory, you know, find out what's good for deer, what's bad for deer, and uh, don't let the timber pimp in your woods it deserves better. Yes. I know it. You know it now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. So, hey, thanks for being on. I, we've got some more coming this summer between you and I. We've got a few more topics that we want to kind of get out before hunting season. So thanks for uh, great input, great information. I really like the fact that we hit on some, you know, deer preference uh, plants. That's huge for anybody out there. And again, get out in your woods and, and start to enjoy this thing. This is uh, hunt season isn't far away. So paying attention to the small stuff really matters in the, in the long scheme of things. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, John. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. It's great. All right. Take see care. You. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com dot com.